I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast. This is where we give you one of our full interviews of the week. Our podcast this week is with economist and author Allison Schrager. She's out with a new book about understanding risk, and it has something of a risky title as well. What happens when an economist walks into a brothel? Not a joke. It's a book. And here's our conversation. All right. So, Allison Schrager, how did you get the idea for this book? Well, I always had this idea that, you know, financial economics was a really unexplored area of economics. Like You wouldn't think so because it's so, you know, you hear about it. But I felt like it applied to all areas of economics and not just financial markets. So I was flirting with this idea. And then it was actually Business Week who called me and said, you know, we want to do a column exploring different ways to explore risk in unconventional places. And because finance is the study of risk, that's initially what sparked the idea. And this is a few years in the making uh, at this point. So how long does it take to assess risk in this through this lens? Um, you mean how, assessing the risk of yeah. writing a book? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, there you go. A terrible risk decision. Yeah. I think it's always really hard to justify that. I think it has to be purely a creative endeavor because that was, I think it was 2014. Right. And it was me starting to think about how risk could be reported rather than just be in a financial model because financial models, I always had this rough idea from my background in academia that financial models are really just little parables just told with math. Yeah. So it was when I was at Business Week when I started exploring, like, could I take that same parable and report it and find stories that match up to it? And so how do you find your footing back then as a journalist versus an, an academic? Well, I climb out of the ivory tower. <laughs> I, I, you, you know, you, I think what was hard is you, it's not your opinion anymore. Yeah. And that you have to, uh, as, as, as academics, we don't really talk to people. In fact, we're discouraged from it because, and for sometimes good reasons, it's not a lack of curiosity. It's partially that you don't want anecdotes to bias your analysis, but it's not a very effective way to tell a story and connect with people. Uh, so it was learning how to do that, how to write for an audience, how to tell stories that connect and how to find people really off the beaten path. Right. And learn how to get them to open up to you. So let's go back even further. Why'd you become an economist in the first place? Well, I think like a lot of economists, I grew up with a lot of questions. And I grew up in a community where there was what we call bimodal income distribution. People were either upper middle class or very poor. And I never quite understood why. And where was this? In Storrs, Connecticut. So sort of northeastern Connecticut that has a lot of declining industry. Right. But it was also a big university town. Right. So I think those income differences always really, I, I was actually the fourth generation to grow up there. So I always felt really connected to the lower income people. Anyway, I had professional parents. So I couldn't quite figure out why this was happening generation after generation. And when I started studying economics, I started getting answers. And I just, I remember even when I was like 15 with economics, I always just wanted to know more. Like there was just never enough. And I think that's why I knew early I would go all the way and get a PhD with it because it's just every time I learned an answer, I had a new question. Mm -hmm. And so were your parents academics? No. Or, okay. No, uh, just as I said, just grew up there. Yeah. Uh, and so you go through your your studies and and do you have a sort of a specialty within economics I uh, at that point? I do. Well, I, I actually specialized pretty early, like my early 20s with retirement finance, uh, which uh, is, is an interesting role even within economics. So if you study retirement economics, it's actually a macro public finance, which is the questions of how should society best move resources through the future. Um, but that's a huge risk problem. 
right? And while I got some exposure to finance, financial economics, I didn't get a lot, mainly because a lot of financial economics at the university I was at was mainly like, you know, grinding data and looking for violations of the efficient markets hypothesis. So it didn't really appeal to me. But then uh, after grad school, I kind of went rogue and left academia. And I ended up meeting Robert Merton, who is a famous financial economist for solving Black Scholes. And he was like looking at my research, which was really thinking about how people manage wage and asset risk and what makes sense in sort of defined benefit versus defined contribution pensions. And he uh, was like, I think this is really interesting. Why don't you come work with me and I'll teach you finance? And that's what exposed me to sort of financial economics, which is just the study of risk and markets. Right. And as I got to know him and was mentored by him for almost seven years, I really started to see these problems everywhere and see how his way of thinking and understanding the world in any market in terms of how you put a price on risk and value risk really could explain so much, much bigger than retirement or any problem. And so how do you attack a book? Uh, like this? How do you create the framework to tell the right stories in the right order? So I really, I, you know, they said the book is, is a little salacious, you know, <laughs> I go into brothels. Right. But the, it started with... Every author knows you've got to start with a good title or you got to at least have a good title to sell it. And this is a great one. But Thank go you. on. Um, it started actually quite nerdy of thinking about what themes... Is it, I, I was... Working in retirement, retirement finance, I felt very strongly there are certain things people need to know that I don't think are that complicated, but we just don't teach people that people need to understand about markets and financial risk. So I just started thinking about each topic, like each lesson from finance that people want to know. And that was the original outline. And then I just sort of found stories. I found any market that seemed quirky or interesting to me, I would just go and show up and right. see what the story was there. And it always matched. There was always something there that lined up with this broader theme from risk or financial risk that was just lying in plain sight. And so and I want to get into some of those stories, especially surfing uh, in a minute. But one of the great things you do at the top of the book, near the beginning of the book, is you talk about the rules of risk. And, and we don't have to go through all of them, but tease out a couple for us. So the first thing is, and this sounds so simple, is you really have to define risk and reward. Like everyone says, you know, n- no risk, no reward. But what that really means is actually something more complicated. First, you know, I go through a lot of very complicated ways, you know, Everything in this book is what everyone does on Wall Street. It's just trumped up, packaged around, and layered on each other. But it's all these basic ideas. But the most sophisticated risk strategy will never compensate for not taking a well-defined risk to start with, which is being really clear of what you want and what you're risking for. Mm. You know, in pension economics, the way defined benefit plans are supposed to work, but not always, is you define a goal, which is you need this stream of income in the future, and you take just enough risk to get that. And once you have that risk, you take risk off the table. Now, no one does that because they never actually make enough money or people get confused about their goal. But this is actually the most efficient way to take risk and the most thoughtful way to do it. So you want want to define what you're taking a risk for, put it in risk-free terms, and then figure out exactly how much risk you want to take to get it. And honestly, if you do that, you're 99% there. That's easier said than done. <laughs> and how does that work in the real world? Well, it is. It's defining what you want. I mean, it's and that's not an easy thing. People yeah. spend a lot of money on therapists and life coaches just trying to figure out what it is they want out of life. But I mean, you have to think through, you know, even if if, you know, a relationship ends and you're unhappy in it, like, what are you looking for in a partner? Like, exactly. Be very clear. If you're unhappy in your job, like, what do you want out of your job? And I mean, one thing I discuss is what we do in finance is 
uh, or you're supposed to do, and a lot of people do, is you price it in risk-free terms. Like what would get you there with as little risk as possible? So uh, I use the example of, you know, if you want a pleasant evening, um, you know, you can stay in and watch Netflix. That's low risk. Or you can go out and you can go to a party. I mean, there's a whole range of things that could happen. You could have a bad time. You could get hit by a car or it could be the best party of your life. You could meet the love of your life. So uh, the risk free is home watching Netflix. Uh, risky is going out to a party. So let's talk about surfing. Uh -huh. That was one of my favorite chapters oh, in yeah. here. And it, because that's something that even if you don't surf, yeah. you understand sort of the, the risks uh, or at least the basic risks. So take us inside that business because you actually spent some time in, of all places, a hotel ballroom with surfers. Again, like so much cognitive dissonance throughout this. Um, but help us understand how they think about risk because it's yeah. new. Well, they, they actually think a lot about it. Um, they actually, yes, have an annual risk conference. In, I mean, actually, I think they do it a couple times a year now in a hotel ballroom with like no windows, except that, I mean, they all look cooler than other risk conferences. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're in the room and there's slides and there's numbers, but everyone's like in shorts and they're super tan and they're great looking. And um, then there's me. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like the only woman there, too. And everyone's very sort of like, if you want to be here, fine. But what I was surprised is, you know, this felt a lot like a pension risk conference in the content of what we were talking about. One of their intellectual leaders is a man named Brian Kirlana, who brought jet skis to big wave surfing. And I, he's also worked as a stunt man and he has is a native Hawaiian. He has a long history of relatives who've worked in water sports. And he said to me, you know, I had this revelation in, I think it was the nineties that risk is something that could be managed. And he really became the self-taught risk guru who really studies the principles of risk and risk minimization and risk management. And so how does that actually apply to surfing? How do these guys who are chasing after a reward that is, if not hard to define, hard to quantify, uh, I would imagine. And yet they talk about waves and wave sets and things like that. Take us inside that. Yeah. So a couple things. So in the book, I mentioned different ways to manage risk. One is hedging. The other is insurance. So they both apply to surfing. So an example of a hedge in surfing. So a hedging is just taking less risk, balancing risk and reward and finding that just right combination. So waves travel in sets of, say, five. And one thing that they suggest you do is it's not a matter. They're not like these dudes who go out and be like, I must surf the biggest wave because it's there. In fact, often a bigger wave might be the first one in a set, but you would never take that wave because if you wipe out, you've got four big waves barreling on you. Right. So they'll take a later wave in the set. Anyway, it might be smaller, a less perfect wave just because it's a safer thing to do. So they're not just jumping on the biggest wave. The other thing they do is insurance, which is making sure they have resources in place if they wipe out. So Brian is notable in the industry because he brought jet skis to big wave surfing. And a jet ski is a lot like a stock option in a lot of ways in that it's there if you wipe out. So it's really insurance. But just like an option, you can also flip it around to take more risk and lever up. Right. So what he does, so after he brought jet skis to surfing as insurance, other surfers started noticing you could use them to push you on bigger waves you couldn't physically paddle out on. So this is what's enabled people to now surf these 80-foot waves you see pictures of is those same jet skis, which are originally insurance, but can also really be used as leverage. Right. And and I want to explore that a little bit because one of the things you talk about, which is well known to certainly our audience, well known to uh, 
just about everyone on Wall Street and certainly Main Street as well, given the financial crisis, is this notion of leverage yeah. um, and taking bigger and bigger risks and finding instruments that allow you to do that. And you have a line in in the book, uh, late in the book, where you where which I think is very profound, where you say these big risks pose costs to others. And I feel like as a society, we're really grappling with that right now. Where do you sort of come out? Hey, help us understand uh, how that plays into the broader theory here. Well, and this is the big question. Like, I, I've gone to a couple of like academic economics, financial macro conferences, and this is the big question. And this was honestly the big question at the surf risk conference. It wasn't just techniques to manage your own risk. It was you're taking, if you take these outside risks, you're posing risks to others too, in terms of resources you need to get rescue, in terms of crashing into someone in terms of it's just dangerous to rescue you. So the question is, and I think this is the big debate we have in finance, is where does responsibility lie? Yeah. And who should take responsibility? I, I asked the surfers, I was like, do you, because, you know, in finance, we, you know, we assume people can't just control themselves and we need regulation because there's always this incentive to take outsized risks and not realize the cost to others. And I asked all the surfers, I'm like, do you think you should be regulated? Do you think there should be a license for big wave surfing the same way there's a license for, say, scuba diving? Yeah, or fishing, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm like, maybe, because they, they were very concerned about access to equipment and they seem to think that the um, vendors of equipment should take that responsibility. But I'm like, maybe it should be on the government. Maybe you can't expect individual entities to do this. And everyone hated that idea. It was a, like, you know, I, I don't know what their politics are, but this would be the one thing they're like, no, no, keep the government out of surfing. Yeah. But I think it is a worthwhile question is, is we do wonder who is it responsible to the government? Is the person selling a product? Like is someone selling derivative being irresponsible? Is someone selling an inflatable vest or a jet ski being irresponsible? Or should it just fall on the individual? And I don't think there's good answers. I think it really falls on everyone. And Sid, this is a the big question that's unresolved in academic finance in industry and even for the surfers. Right. Well, and it feels like it's unresolved even on Wall Street in the sense of, you know, we're 11, 12 years on from the financial crisis. And obviously there are questions that remain around, you know, whether and how people should have been punished who, mm -hmm. you know, had a role in that crisis. But there were also so many, you know, whether this is is the right terminology or not derivative effects in yeah. terms of economic effects in a place like New York City or the tri-state area or middle America, uh, for that matter. As you have gone through this, how do you think we as a society, especially in the United States, sort of are dealing with risk uh, at this point? No, well, I mean, one thing that really said it inspired me to write the book is I saw that we've put this huge risk problem on people, not only in the retirement space, but just also in terms of everything. You know, technological change brings huge systemic, systematic risks to everyone. And you know, we haven't really given anyone tools to think about risk. It's, it. it's sort of this very binary thing. Either you take a risk or you don't. Either you're this cautious person or you're not. And that leads people to sort of take these sort of reckless risks of, I'm a risk taker, I need change. Instead of the way you're supposed to think about it, which is this third or middle way that takes a large range, which is, you know, how to think about risk responsibly. Like maybe surf that big wave, but maybe not surf the biggest wave. Yeah. Maybe about surf the wave that makes, that just sort of pushes your limits just a bit. And that's the best way for people to be taking risks. Right. And so the book is only about a week old uh, <laughs> as we're sitting here uh, in New York. How's the response been? What's been the most surprising feedback you've gotten? Um, you know, I thought people, I thought I thought people would be negative, but I thought people would be more like financial economics. That's been disproved because people say that all the time. Yeah. But people have been a lot more open than I would have thought. 
And do you think it's because you are giving examples? Like, I mean, the surfing example is amazing because people get it. Like people understand waves. They understand surfing, even in, as I said, if, if they don't do it. I like to think so. And I, you know, I like to think people can see themselves in the stories and think about risk a little bit more strategically. Right. All right. So what's next for you? You've got this book, you're out selling it literally and uh, figuratively. What, what, what's next for Alison Trigger? You know, as I said, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, more risk. So uh, having written this book, are you less or more willing to take risk? Um, I guess I said it was a, it's a big risk to write a book, yeah. especially, you know, the opportunity cost is very large. Um, but it was just creatively something I had to do. Right. So I guess I'll take it from there. Great. Alison Traeger, congrats on the book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio Live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. This is Bloomberg.